Hello everyone, thank you for checking out my YouTube channel today, The Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I am your host, Nick Barksdale, and today we are joined by a very special guest. Many of you are going to take one look, you know who he is, you've read his books, you've watched his lectures, you've listened to him. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Dr. Klein. It's wonderful to be here, thank you. Most of our subscribers know you because of 1177 B.C., the year that civilization collapsed. You take us on a tour of the Bronze Age collapse, the sea peoples, and the rise, fall, and rise again of civilizations. Would you mind if I asked you a few questions from my fans on this? Oh, not at all. I, uh, I never mind talking about the, uh, <laughs> about the collapse of civilizations 3,200 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but um, do you know the story of how the, the book came to be? No. No? All right. Before you ask me questions, let me just tell you very quickly. First of all, writing the book was not my idea. Um, I had no plans to write it. Uh, I did want to write a, um, uh, a popularizing book on the late Bronze Age because it's my absolute favorite period of history. You know, like I say in my lectures, if I could be reincarnated backwards, I'd want to live in that period right? We'd all be dead within 48 hours, right? I'd probably walk off a cliff with my eyesight or whatever. Um, so I had wanted to write a book on the late Bronze Age. But Rob Tempio from Princeton University Press came down, bought me a, a nice lunch, and he said, I want you to write a book about the collapse of the Bronze Age. And I said, well, you know, why? Um, in fact, Princeton's already published a book because Robert Drews, the the end of the late, of the Bronze Age, which is a great book. I said, you guys published that in 1993, and he says, yeah, but you know, now it's it was I think it was 2007 at the time. He says things have changed. I said, yeah, things have changed, and he says, all right, so will you write you know a new book on the end of the Bronze Age? And I said, well, I'll do it if I can also write about um, not just you know why and how it collapsed, but what collapsed. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, let me start and end the book with the collapse. But in the middle, the middle chapters, let me write about what it was like in the late Bronze Age, 15th century, 14th century, 13th century. And he's like, okay, let's do that. So that's how 1177 came to be. And that's why it's got its format is the beginning and the ending is about the collapse. But the middle part is about what collapsed. So Mycenaeans, Minoans, Canaanites, Hittites, you know, Cypriots, Assyrians, Babylonians, all my favorite people. And I got to talk about them. But I also, I wanted to do it to show, especially people that had never heard of the late Bronze Age, which is um, a lot of people, way too many people don't know about the Bronze Age, uh, so that they could appreciate what it was like back then and how interconnected the world was between what we would call today Italy and Afghanistan and between what is today Turkey and Egypt. And so that actually contributed to the collapse because of how interconnected they were. So um, Rob said, okay, go for it. And so that's what I wrote. Uh, and I had, uh, again, a lot of fun writing it. I always had fun writing my books, but in particular, I was able to bring together the stories that I had really been telling in class uh, all those years. And in fact, some of my students say to me, reading 1177, we can hear your class lectures because I simply took the class I teach on um, the Aegean, right? the Minoans, Mycenaeans, and all that. I took the class I teach on ancient Near East and Egypt. I took the class I teach on the Trojan War, 
And I put them all together in the book and said, hello, here we go. And so it was a lot of fun. But it's now out of date a bit. And so I'm actually working on a um, revised edition at the moment. And I'm also working on a sequel to it called After 1177. What do you do after your world has collapsed? How do you come back? Which um, may be a little bit relevant to what's going on today, but we'll see. Anyway, so that's the backstory to the book. So having said all that, I'm happy to answer any questions that you've got about the contents. That is fantastic. And for my subscribers, I promise I'm going to inquire a little bit at the end about after 1177 BC, because when Dr. Klein mentioned that to me in a previous email, I about dropped my coffee because I had no idea that there was a sequel coming and I was excited to say the least. So, yeah. so when it comes to the late Bronze Age collapse for some of our subscribers who may just now be getting into the subject, like you said, there's plenty of people that don't really know anything about the Bronze Age. And for those just coming to it, would you kind of give us a brief rundown of what was this Bronze Age collapse? So to my mind, the collapse is the most calamitous event that has happened in human history um, that nobody's ever heard of, right? Everybody's heard of the fall of Rome, right? Well, the collapse of the Bronze Age, which was 1,500 years earlier, was just as catastrophic, if not more so, um, because in the collapse of Rome, of course, you've got an, an empire that goes down. But in the collapse of the Bronze Age, you've got no fewer than seven different societies, civilizations that all go down at the same time, in part, I think, because they were uh, interconnected. So I call them um, the, the G7, G8, G9 of the ancient world. But basically, Mycenaeans and Minoans in what is today Greece, the Cypriots, the Canaanites in what is today Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Assyrians and Babylonians in Mesopotamia, think modern-day Iraq, Hittites up in Anatolia, modern Turkey, and the Egyptians down in Egypt, of course. They're all interacting from, oh boy, at least the 15th century BC, if not earlier, uh, in many cases. And they're happily uh, doing diplomatic treaties, they're trading with each other, uh, they're um, uh, cementing treaties by marrying daughters to each other, uh, and so on. You know, all the, all the good stuff that happens way back when, uh, when everybody needs raw materials and finished goods. So the copper, for example, is coming from Cyprus. Uh, silver uh, and lead would be coming from, like, Lavrion outside of Athens and Greece. Um, Tin, some tin probably coming from southeastern Turkey, but mostly from the Badakhshan region of Afghanistan, same area that lapis lazuli comes from. So that's coming, you know, hundreds if not thousands of miles. So they're trading for these raw goods because, of course, you need both tin and copper to make bronze, right? 90% copper, 10% tin, though you can use arsenic if you don't have the tin. I don't worry recommend it you'll be dead right away but you know it does work so they're trading for the raw materials but they're also trading for finished goods so some of my favorite examples uh, we have from the mari letters an archive found at the site of mari on the euphrates um, where in about 1800 bc uh, we've got a record of, of international trade and contact and we know they're sending for example gold daggers inlaid with lapis lazuli from what is Crete today, all the way to Mari, 
They're also sending things like uh, leather sandals, leather shoes. And my favorite is one that gets sent to Hammurabi, but that is sent back. And I've, I've never understood. And, you know, this is Hammurabi, a law, uh, you know, the law code, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And um, we're told in this letter that he sent the shoes back. I'm like, why? Were they too small? Were they to last millennium? You know, didn't he ever hear of re-gifting? So, and these are things that I talk about in, in my various lectures. So there's lots of trade and interconnection, but suddenly, round about 1200 BC and just after, everything collapses, just in on the blink of an eye, a heartbeat, as it were. It actually takes up to 100 years for everything to go away. Uh, but the late Bronze Age comes to basically a sudden end all life as they knew it collapsed and they have to reboot they have to restart and so we get the iron age i think in part because the trade routes are cut you can't get the tin uh even the copper is hard to get so you turn to iron which they knew about but hadn't really been using up until that point lots of misinformation out there people say the hittites had it people say the sea peoples had it no nobody really had iron before the collapse. They turned to it because they had to. And you also then get a new, basically a new world order. The old empires and kingdoms of the Hittites, Mycenaeans, Minoans, uh, Assyrians, they go away and they're um, replaced with new entities, smaller entities. It's a systems collapse. And so we get little city-states, little kingdoms. And this is where something like the kingdoms of Israel and Judah can come from. They uh, are built up in what is, in essence, a power vacuum after the collapse. They are able to come into being. So we meet all kinds of new people, Philistines. Uh, and in fact, we have the word new, neo, attached to a lot of them. Instead of the Hittites, now we get the neo-Hittites. Instead of the Assyrians, now we get the neo-Assyrians. Instead of Babylonians, we get the neo-Babylonians. So the Iron Age is a whole new world. They have to um, literally reboot and start again. Uh, and so I do think this is one of the periods that, at least for me, is the most interesting in world history, uh, one of the most catastrophic, and one of the best examples of resiliency, because either you bounced back or you didn't. And quite a few of them didn't. There's no more Minoans. There's no more Mycenaeans. No more Hittites. But there are Assyrians that keep going, now is the Neo-Assyrians, the Egyptians keep going, but at a lower level. Uh, and so you can really watch how some adapt uh, and rebuild, and some just can't do it. And of course, the big question is, what happened? Why did they collapse, right? What were the various drivers? What were the various stressors? And I've argued that it's a perfect storm, that no one uh, stressor is enough to bring you down. We've got evidence for climate change back then. There is what's called a mega drought, and actually that'll be in the revised edition. There's more evidence now that uh, a drought lasted between 150 and 300 years from just after 1200 until in some places down to 900 or even 800 BC. So you've got the drought. Out of that, we have textual evidence for famine. We've got evidence for the sea peoples, the invaders. We've got um, evidence for earthquakes. And like I said, I don't think any one of those was enough to bring the whole world down on their own. But what if you have two? What if you have three? What if you have four? All at the same time. 
then you get a domino effect, you get a multiplier effect, and I think you get a perfect storm, and that's enough. Because you cannot, let's say you have an earthquake, and it affects everybody, and then you have time to recover from it. Okay, you're fine, you're back up. A lot of people died, but you're back up. What if you don't have time to recover from it? What if while you're recovering, you're also hit with a drought and famine? And what if on top of that, you get hit by invaders? So at some point, you don't have enough time or resources to rebuild, that's when you collapse. So I think it's a combination of all of these things. And actually, that's what has me worried about us today, because I see the same perfect storm of catastrophic events gathering today with climate change, droughts, famines, wars, and now the pandemic sweeping the globe. Um, I, I see things lining up in a way that I don't like seeing. And so I am a bit worried uh, for what's going to happen with us. So suddenly ancient history becomes ever more relevant. Uh, and I do think that we need to look at what happened in the late Bronze Age collapse and look around our world today. Because even if Santayana isn't right and history repeats itself, Mark Twain did say that history rhymes. And I think we've got a little rhyme going on today. So uh, speaking about this with you today and to your listeners, uh, it's not just a matter of ancient history. It is relevant to today. And we would do well to look at what happened because they collapsed. And if we don't want to collapse, we need to figure out how we're not going to. What are we going to do about it? I completely agree. And you're so right. The study of the past always has relevance in the present and especially when shaping the future. And honestly, everything you've just said is so fantastically on point to what we are experiencing today. I was just remarking to my wife the other day, I was sitting there and she was like, you look like you're thinking about something too hard. And I was like, you know, I was like, I'm thinking about how we've got this pandemic. You've seen a lot of governments overseas and even here struggling to keep pace. You've got possibility of wars breaking out, especially right now. We don't know if Kim Jong-un is actually dead or who, if he is, who will take over and create that power vacuum. And so I said, you know, our entire globe could change like that, you know? And so it's, it's stuff like that, that people who study history, even briefly, they can look at it and see how relevant it is to their life today. And what we have to realize too, it's not necessarily the direct events, but also the ripple effects. So, you know, from the pandemic, which is horrible in and of itself, you've also got now the ripple effects of massive unemployment, right? 26 million people out of work in the last five weeks. You've got um, the stock markets wildly fluctuating. Uh, the economy is going to be hit probably with ramifications for years to come. So it's all the ripple effects as well. But the other thing that I've been thinking about when I was um, working on revising 1177, which, by the way, I hope to be done with the next couple of weeks, and uh, I don't know how long it will take for Princeton to get it out again, but within the year there will be a revision uh, with, as I say, mostly new scientific data, um, lake sediments and caves and all of that, showing that there really uh, definitely was this drought back then. But the other thing I was wrestling with is while they were collapsing, did they actually know they were collapsing like in the middle of it? We certainly have textual evidence that some knew 
that there was a problem. I mean, the Hittite king says, we're starving here, it's a matter of life and death. And the, the king of Ugarit writes down to Egypt, we don't have any more grain, please send it to us. So they knew there was at least a problem on the small side. And then you have other texts, you know, the enemy ships have been sighted, uh, let me know what's happening. But did they know the larger period? Did they know, oh, oh my God, everything that's happened uh, is going to bring an end to, to our way of life? Um, if you're in the middle of a collapse, do you know you're in the middle of a collapse? Or do you only know it in hindsight, looking back? Oh, wow, you know, that's when the collapse started, was, you know, 50 years ago. Or how come we didn't realize it started last Tuesday, you know? So... Uh, we've been thinking about this, and then a reporter called me, was doing a story on exactly that topic, and that just came out a day or so ago, uh, and uh, she interviewed me about late Bronze Age, interviewed Stephen Hunter uh, about the collapse of the Maya, interviewed somebody else about the collapse of Rome, and uh, each of us looked, you know, answered from our perspective, but I thought that was um, a really interesting Thing to be looking at an interesting aspect uh, and again i would say from our point of view obviously we're still cruising along you know pretty okay today even despite all the major problems but will we look back will future historians all right you know future historians are going to write about our period of course that's a given right we're going to be so many books are going to be written about 2020 um, but are they going to be able to say yeah, they were in a collapse and didn't realize it, or yeah, they were in the process of collapsing and they took these steps to avert it. You know, we are making history today, and uh, I see 1177 as one of the turning points in ancient history. I have a feeling that 2020 is going to be a turning point in modern history as well. So, yeah, I would say there's a lot to be learned from the lessons of the past, and it would do well for us to heed them. But um, wow, we'll see where this goes, and 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 what we do. How do we? Uh, how resilient are we? How do we deal with all of this? Ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to check out the links in the video description below, where you can also acquire "Digging Up Armageddon: The Search for the Lost City of Solomon" by none other than Doctor. Eric Klein. It is a fantastic book that takes you through not just the history of Megiddo, but the history of those who brought it to our understanding, who guided us through it, who excavated it, the hardships and drama that they endured, and the fascinating stories of the men and women who shaped archaeology of their day. It comes in a book format you can get it on Kindle, but also what is absolutely fantastic is if you get and download the audiobook, you get to listen to Dr. Eric Klein himself take you through his awesome work, and I can't recommend it enough.